I got a question for you. What is the worst gift you ever received at Christmas? Can you remember it? You ever, you ever, you remember like the worst gift you ever got at Christmas? I called my mom this week and I asked her about it for me. And she goes, well, really you loved everything. Like you were just the kid who was always excited about whatever you got. And you made a big deal out of the smallest thing. And as we talked a little more, we said, yeah, but I think there was something that I didn't like so much when I got underwear in my stocking. She even had a picture of it. That's me on the left with the excited face getting underwear in my stocking. How about the best gift you ever received? What's the best gift you ever got? Do you remember? Well, I bet you never got one like this from a company called Hillcorp. Hillcorp is a company based in Houston, Texas, and it's been rated as one of the top hundred places to work for the last three to five years by Fortune magazine. This year, they're living up to it again. They're giving every one of their 1,380 employees a $100,000 Christmas bonus. You're like, I'm moving to Texas. Shining up my resume. Contact Hillcorp. But you know what? This is something they've done for a few years in a row. The picture there shows a few years ago, two or three years ago, they gave everybody in their company, no matter their pay scale, they gave everybody a choice of either $35,000 cash or a $50,000 new car. Pretty good Christmas gift. I've never gotten one quite like that. Well, in our 110 group this year, we, um, we've been talking for a while, a couple weeks ago, about having a white elephant gift exchange. And we did that actually this weekend. But while we were talking about it, um, one member of our group, who I won't name, wasn't a big fan of it. And the reason was, is that every time at a white elephant gift exchange, you know how that works at a white elephant gift exchange? You bring something that's basically kind of junk, basically, from your house and wrap it up as a gift and you give it away to everybody else. And in our group, though, the problem is some people would bring a gift like that and other people would go buy a gift. So we ended up deciding on just everybody go buy a gift and we exchanged it. And, but anyway, the, the reason he didn't want to do that is because he said, the problem is I bring something good and everybody brings junk and I take home your junk. <laughs> and we kind of razzed him for a while, made fun of him. But what I didn't tell Aaron in that moment <laughs> is that really he was being like Jesus in that moment. Because, you know, that's what Jesus does. And that's what we're going to see this morning is Christmas really is a gift exchange with your savior and Jesus. We wrap up all our sin and all our filth and all our nastiness and all our junk. And we say, Merry Christmas. And he exchanges with us his life and his goodness and his love. And that's what Jesus does. And that's what we're going to see this morning is some of the gifts that we give Jesus And the gifts then that he gives us in return. So tell you what, let me pray. And then we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 53 this morning. Let me pray. Father, thanks for Jesus. And thanks for your grace to us through him. Thanks that you're good to us. And that you give us good things. That you really are a good father. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak to and through me as we study your word this morning. And I pray against the enemy as well, his servants, their works and effects, that he wouldn't take your word and twist it or cause us to be callous to truths that we already know. But instead, Spirit, would you pierce our hearts and make us more like Jesus? Thank you that you forgive me, Jesus, of my sin, 
and uh, help all of us to know that truth personally today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah chapter 53. Now this passage typically is a passage that's preached around Easter. And some of the things you're going to hear here, you're like, oh, that's Christmas? That, that sounds more like Easter than it does Christmas. Well, you know what? Easter, let me borrow a phrase from the great motivational speaker, Matt Foley. Easter doesn't mean jack squat without Christmas. It doesn't. If you didn't have Easter, you wouldn't be celebrating Christmas. Or see, I said that the wrong way. Christmas doesn't mean jack squat without Easter. If we didn't have Easter, we wouldn't be celebrating Christmas. If Jesus hadn't died on the cross and rose from the grave, no one would give a rip about Christmas. And you'd be working all week long. You're like, ooh, I'm glad he rose from the grave. We're celebrating Christmas, right? Well, let's read about this passage from Easter, because without Easter, Christmas is a waste of time. Isaiah writes this in Isaiah 53. We're going to read through the whole chapter. He writes this, he says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, speaking of Jesus, grew up before him, speaking of the Father, like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised, Jesus was, and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he, Jesus, was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He, Jesus, was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace was the chastisement that brought, brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He, Jesus, was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shear, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he Jesus was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, Jesus, has put, he, the Father, has put him, Jesus, to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he, Jesus, shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. The first thing I want us to look at this morning, and we see him in this passage, we see it in Isaiah's prophecy about 
Jesus' death and suffering on the cross, we see the gifts that we give to Jesus at Christmas. And the first one that we see is this. We hated and rejected him. You're like, I don't hate Jesus. I like Jesus. No, yeah, but, but you know what's true? Is maybe before you liked him and before you loved him, you hated him and you rejected him. It's the truth of every human heart. And it's displayed pretty clearly in Isaiah 53. If we start in verse 2, Isaiah writes, For he, he, Jesus, he grew up before him like a young plant. Like a young plant, this is a metaphor for Jesus. It really, it points us to Jesus' humanity. It, he, he didn't come as a strong tree fully established. He came as a young plant. What, what can you do with a young plant? <laughs> You can go and you can snap it off right at the base, right? And you can kill it in a heartbeat. It's easy to pull a young weed, a lot easier than it is to pull a full-grown one, isn't it? And Jesus came as a tender young shoot, maybe your translation says. He was vulnerable. And I I think, too, this is probably a reference back to Genesis 3.15 of him being the seed of the woman. And he was like a root out of dry ground. Revelation 22, Jesus says this. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. He says, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright. As God, Jesus is the root of David, and as man, he's a young and tender plant. And look at what else he writes about him. He had no former majesty that we should look at him. In other words, Jesus was fully man in every way. You didn't look at him and go, that's God. That, that guy's God. He's not a normal guy. Now, you would have done that based on his character, but not based on how he looked. His appearance was one who's fully a man. And no beauty. He had no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, he was a normal-looking man. Now, some people have taken this to say, well, see, Jesus, he was just a homely dude. He had no beauty about him. I, I don't know that it's saying that. But it is saying there was, he wasn't Tom Cruise. It is saying we, didn't, we weren't attracted to him because of the way he looked. He was just a normal-looking guy. Which is curious because, do you remember earlier in the Old Testament how uh, God's people, when they chose a king, how did they choose King Saul? They chose him based on how he looked. He was the tallest, most handsome guy in all the land. He was taller by a head than anyone else. And they picked Saul. And what happened after they picked Saul? Things went pretty terrible. When the people picked their king. But when God picked a king for them, he picked David. And, and it says this in 1 Samuel sixteen seven. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't look on his appearance. See, David was a shepherd. He was out in the field. He was just a young kid. Well, why would you pick him? Don't look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. However, when Jesus would suffer at his crucifixion, just a, the chapter, verse before all of this, in 52, verse 14, his crucifixion and the suffering he endured made him, made him terrifyingly hideous. As many were astonished at you, Isaiah writes in 52, 14, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Jesus was so beaten for our sin. He was so rejected and hated by us that when he was beaten on the cross and hung on the cross, you're like, that's a guy? That's a man? 
And who is it? I, I can't even recognize him. He's so disfigured. Loved ones, that's the gift that we give him. We hated him. We rejected him. Look at verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. You're like, yeah, the people then. No, us too. Us too. We despised and rejected him. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. See, normally when a king comes, you honor him, right? If the president were to come to town, whether you like the president or not, if he showed up at town, my guess is you would go because there's a certain amount of honor that the president's here. And you want to see that. And you want to be a part of that. And that, that, that's for many of us, it's a once in a lifetime experience that you would ever see a living president. And when a king comes, when a ruler comes, usually that you treat him with honor and with glory. But look at when the king of king comes, he's despised and rejected. He's the servant, he's God's servant, and he's treated like any other slave with contempt. He's hated and rejected. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. You know, Jesus knows what it's like to have sorrow and grief. Do you have sorrow and grief? More people struggle with depression and sorrow and grief this time of year than any other time of year. Do you know that? Because they're, they're wishing for something they don't have. They're wishing for someone they don't have or someone they lost. And Jesus knows what it's like to have sorrow and grief. He was acquainted with grief. He was a man of sorrows. He took on human weakness, Hebrews writes, so that we, he could become acquainted with us in every way. Hebrews 5.2, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself was beset with weakness. And one of the themes of this passage is the anguish and grief and sorrow that Jesus would suffer. But you need to know he suffered those things because of my sin and because of your sin. He was born to die. When thinking of the gifts we exchange with him, don't miss the fact that he took on the anguish and grief and suffering and sorrow for us. In a certain sense, one of the greatest gifts that he gives us then is simply receiving the garbage we give him. He doesn't say, forget that. I don't want anything to do with that. You're way too messy. Go home. Jesus doesn't say that. He receives it. And you'll see that he accepts you as you are. What you're going to see is that our gifts to Jesus are received by him as his gift to us. Surely, verse 4, he's borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. You might add, he received our gifts. (laughs) Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Notice it says he bore whose griefs? Mine. Whose sorrows? Mine. This is all happening, in other words, because of me, because of my sin. That's why he's suffering and full of anguish and grief. And yet, what do I do? I go, I look at him, and the people of that day looked at him. And if you were there, you would have looked at him, and you would have said, I wonder what he did to have all that bad stuff happening to him. He must have done something really stupid for all that to happen to him. We esteemed him. We didn't pay attention that it was our griefs and our sorrows. No, we esteemed him stricken. Ooh, I wonder what he did that caused such awful things in his life. He must have really done something stupid or bad. Instead of knowing it was for our sin, we esteemed him smitten by God. 
I mean, it must have been really bad. Look at what God has done. He must, he, what an idiot. He must have done something really stupid. He deserves it. We esteemed him afflicted. I guess that's what he deserves. <laughs> He's just getting what he deserves. <laughs> he must have had it coming. That's how we esteemed him. We failed to recognize he was enduring all of it for us. The second gift that we give Jesus, not only do we hate him and reject him, we turn away from him. We turn away from him. He was pierced, verse 5, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. This passage, may, this verse maybe of any other in this passage really shows the exchange that happens. Jesus took the, the chastising and the anguish and he gave me peace. <laughs> Jesus took the wounds for my sin. I get the healing. Jesus took my filth. I get to be clean. Jesus took my sin. I get his righteousness. Luther called this the great exchange or the wondrous exchange is actually the words he used when he wrote about it. Martin Luther, and he he wrote it based on 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him, he made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. But again, you notice the title of the message since it's Christmas, instead of the great exchange, let's just call it the gift exchange. I give him all those things and he gives me righteousness. Look at verse six, talking about turning away. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, has laid on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. All of us like sheep have gone astray. All of us were sinful by nature. We're like a sheep. You ever been around sheep? They're not the smartest animals in the world by nature. By nature, they turn away and do stupid things. I think I shared with you a story from a couple years ago in Turkey where a flock of sheep, one ran over the cliff and four, four to 500 sheep, you, you can Google this, you'll find it in the news, ran over the cliff and jumped down, but about half of them died. The rest just landed on the fluffy pillow when they hit the bottom. But one jumped, they're like, hey, let's go, I'm jumping. By nature, they just stray. Like us, by nature, we stray from God. We're like sheep. But we also sin not just in our nature, but by our choice. See, we, we not, we've gone astray. We've turned, every one of us. In case, see, the writer, he knows sometimes maybe our nature and how we like to deny our sinfulness. All of us like sheep. Oh, that's not me. No, we, we've turned. Oh, not me. No, everyone, he says, every one of us have turned to his own way. Paul writes in Romans 3.10, none is righteous, not one. In 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The psalmist in Psalm 14 writes the same thing, that there is none righteous, not one. And the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. Jesus never turned, yet God treated him on the cross like he had turned. 
Jesus never sinned, yet on the cross, God made him to become sin who knew no sin. Literally, on the cross, Jesus becomes the murderer. Jesus becomes the pervert. Jesus becomes the one with addiction. Jesus becomes the one who needs healing. Jesus, fill in the blank. That's who Jesus becomes on the cross for you and for me. He receives that gift from us. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He laid on him the iniquity of us all. Iniquity is this idea of not being straight, of being bent or crooked by nature. Jesus becomes that on the cross for us. He takes on our sin. As others and John and others write, he's the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. In other words, as the propitiation, that's a big theological, biblical word that we don't use in our everyday language, but it was described to me like this. This is a good way to remember it. The propitiation. He took the punch of the wrath of God for me. He took on God's wrath for me on the cross. In a sense, that's the gift that I give him. Number three, the third gift that I give him is we took his life. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Verse seven, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep that's before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. We took his life. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. He was led to the slaughter. You know, sometimes you hear the question asked, who, who killed Jesus? There's even books out you can read. Who killed Jesus? Who killed him? Well, technically the Romans did. And technically the Jewish people did because the Jewish leaders, especially because they delivered him over. But theologically and truthfully, you know who killed him? I did. And you did. Because of your sin. He died on the cross for us. See, sometimes we see someone suffering and it's easy to have empathy with them, right? And we go, oh, man, I just, I, that hurts that they're, they're suffering. That's just, man, I really hurt for them. That's too bad. But it's a totally different game when we look at them and we go, they're suffering because of me. <laughs> Isn't it? That's a whole, total different level. And yet that's why Jesus died on the cross. For me. Because of me. God laid my iniquity, my sin, my transgression on him. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, verse 8. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people, that he was stricken for the transgression of my people? They didn't know what they were doing. They didn't, they didn't realize who he was. They didn't realize that he's dying for them as they pound the nail. Isaiah predicted it. They wouldn't even know what they were doing. Curiously, then Jesus says on the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Paul wrote, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would have never crucified the Lord of glory. If you understood who Jesus was, 
you would never reject him. If people truly understood who Jesus was, they would never take his name in vain. They would never reject him. Do you truly know who he is? It's amazing, too, as he's there, he's he's silent, right? Many people have faced, I mean, in our culture, if you face a wrong trial, an illegal trial, you can appeal it and get it thrown out of court, right? If they try you in the wrong way, yet Jesus' trial, if you go read about it, it was wrong and corrupt in every way, yet he never stood up for himself and said, hey, whoa, what? Hey, this isn't right. Like a lamb before the shares is silent, he opened not his mouth. When Jesus suffered on the cross wrongly, not for his sin, but for mine, I don't know about you, but when I suffer for somebody else, I go, I didn't do that. What are you, what are you getting on me for? I had little brothers. I was a master at that. That wasn't me, mom. That was my brothers. And sometimes it was, and sometimes it was me, but I threw the blame on them anyway. But you know what? With, with Jesus never does that. He never goes, hey, hold on. What are, you, what are you killing me for? This isn't about me. He opened not his mouth. In other words, he went to the cross willfully. You know, if, if you were to go to a, take a philosophy class of some sort in many uh, state schools today or liberal universities, one of the leading arguments right now against the atonement, which is this, what is this is called theologically, where Jesus atones for our sin, is, is one guy wrote, you know what, I can't believe in that because it's just so messed up. It's, it's cosmic child abuse. Jesus, or God is punishing his son. Who could believe that nonsense? Except there's, it's no such thing. Jesus laid down his life. He willfully, he, he opened not his mouth. He was the propitiation. He took the punch for me. It wasn't that he was forced to. He was obedient unto death. Then after he dies, look, they made his grave, verse 9, with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. Here's another incredible prediction about Jesus and the way that he would die. Isaiah predicted Jesus would die like those who were wicked and sinful. Well, what do we know about Jesus' death on the cross? He was crucified between two criminals. Not only this, his grave would be with the wicked, but also with a rich man. That he would be buried. You know where Jesus is buried? In the tomb of a rich man. It was predicted hundreds of years before his birth, even. It's incredible how Isaiah predicts this. But back to the topic for the morning, our gifts to Jesus. Let's just review. We've failed to love and accept him. We've rejected him and despised him and hated him. We've turned away from him. And in fact, we've killed him. We've killed him. We took his life. And each of those things, it's like we wrap it up and we say, here you go. <laughs> really, that's what we do. And becoming a Christian is, that's exactly what you need to do. You need to say, Jesus, I hated you and I rejected you. Here. I turned from you. Here. It's because of me that you died. Here. And I give him those gifts. And if you're feeling like, boy, this is a bummer of a Christmas message. It's not good unless you know how bad it is. It's not good news. It's not the gospel unless you realize how messed up we are. So you ready for some good news? 
Let's look at the gifts that Jesus gives to us. We rejected, we hated and despised and rejected him, but look at what he does. He accepted and loved us. He accepted and loved us. I'm going to go back here and read from verses 4 through 6. Surely he's borne our griefs. He carried our sorrows. I don't know about you, but, but when I'm down and when things are hard, the best thing in the world is to just have a friend who can go through it with me. And, and who maybe can't fix it, but just says, yeah, I get it. That, that's hard. Jesus goes beyond that to where he actually carries it for us. He bore our griefs. He was pierced, why? For me, for my transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquity. Both for my transgressions, the things I did, and my iniquity, my very nature of being sinful and crooked and bent. Upon him was the chastisement that gave me peace. With his wounds, I'm healed. I, like a sheep, have gone astray. I've turned over and over to my own way. And God laid on him my iniquity. And he received it. That was his gift to me. He was oppressed, verse 7, and he was afflicted. He opened not his mouth. He was silent. Not me. I complain when I suffer. Jesus didn't. He was silent, and he took it for me. That was his gift to me. Why did he do that? So that I don't have to. He accepted me as I am. He loved me as I am. Do you get that? It doesn't matter how messed up you might be or how screwed up your life might have been. Jesus loves you as you are. It doesn't, if you're a Christian and you've sinned and you've, you've gone way over the deep end and done something really stupid, do you know that God's love for you has not changed? He accepts you as you are and he still sees you through the veil of his son, Jesus Christ, and you're still his child, his saint. And he simply calls you, come back to me. What do you, you, that's not you. Why are you living like that? His wrath isn't on you. It was on Jesus. That's his gift to you. That's why he was born. Not only did he love and accept us when we rejected and hated him, but when we turned away from him, he came toward us. He turned toward me. There's a certain sense where I look at God and I go, no. And I walk and I turn away. And you know what I think in my mind and you know what the enemy tells me in my mind is that the further I walk away, the further God is for me. You know what the truth is? He's right behind me tapping me on the shoulder say, turn around, repent. That's what repent means, turn around. You can't get away from me. He comes toward us in our sin. He grew up like a young plant. In other words, he stepped down into time. He put on flesh to draw near to me and to draw near to you. That's what Jesus does. That's his gift to you. That's his gift to you. For to us, a a child is born. To us, a son is given. He comes toward us. He chases after us. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. If you have the New Living Translation, it says the good plan, the Lord's good plan was to crush him. He put on him, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. 
Do you, know why, do you know why Jesus comes toward us? Do you know why he does this on the cross? The writer of Hebrews tells us it's for the joy that's set before him. You ever motivated by reward? You ever, you ever get motivated to do something or you try to motivate your kids by putting the carrot out in front of them and hoping they bite and hoping they chase after it? In a sense, when Jesus was on the cross, there was a reward waiting for him. And the reason he stayed on the cross and didn't climb down is because he saw, as Isaiah says, when his soul would make an offering for guilt, he would see his offspring. Some commentators would say then, while Jesus is on the cross, if you've trusted him, the joy before him was he saw you with him forever. That's a powerful thought, isn't it? Have you ever been that loved? That's the joy set before him. He shall see his offspring. He will prolong his days. In other words, he's not going to stay dead after he dies. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Jesus comes toward us to die on the cross for us. And the third thing he gives us is he gives us life. And he forgives us. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. By his knowledge, in other words, by Jesus' experience, he would make many of us to be counted righteous. Maybe the ushers can knock the doors open again. It's getting a little toasty in here. Anybody else? I see some of you fanning yourself and dozing off. I'll try to be louder. He gives us life by his knowledge, his experience, because of what Jesus has done. And it's curious then, too, by knowledge of the righteous one, by knowledge of the holy one, you'll receive righteousness and eternal life. So what John 17, 3 says, that this is eternal life, that they would believe you and know the one whom you sent, Jesus says. And he would cause many to be accounted righteous, and he will bear their iniquities. And it's by bearing our iniquities that he makes us righteous. And then verse 12 here. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Jesus is compared to a victorious soldier here. The New Living Translation actually uses the phrase victorious soldier because Jesus wins the victory over sin and death for you and for me. And not only that, but he, devoid, he, he divides the spoil with you and with me, and he gives us life. Listen, everything you've been chasing for in your life, every gift that you're hoping to get at Christmas, every gift you try to give or that you go to purchase because you think that will satisfy, it's all a shadow of Jesus because he's the one who will truly satisfy. He's the one who truly gives you life. And we're going to end this morning with the first verse of this passage because really the first verse of this passage is the question of your lifetime and it's the question for you that comes around every Christmas. And it's this. Isaiah writes, Who has believed what he has heard from us? To, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is the question of your lifetime. Who has heard? 
So faith comes from hearing, Paul writes, and hearing through the word of Christ. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? There's a certain sense where there's your part in it, where you have to hear God's word and respond. And there's another sense where God simply reveals himself to you. And what I would argue is that based on this verse and some others, that really God revealing himself to you and offering you salvation and Jesus' work on the cross is the greatest demonstration of power that there is in all of history of God. It's his greatest demonstration of power. Do you know when the the scripture writes of his creating of the cosmos, of the heavens and the earth and the moon and the sun and the stars? In Psalm 8, it says that when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers... When, when God rescues the Israelites from the hand of Pharaoh, and they're led across the Red Sea, across the dry land, and eventually into the promised land, Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by the strong hand of the Lord you were brought from this place. Yet look how it describes your salvation. It's not just his fingers, it's not just his hand, it's his strong arm. It's the greatest demonstration of power there is because he does it all. He does it all. And the question of your lifetime then is this. Number one, have I believed what I've heard? Have you believed in the gospel? Have you believed why Jesus came at Christmas? Why he was born as a young, vulnerable baby? Why he died on the cross? You know why many people don't believe? Because there's a certain work of the Holy Spirit that has to happen in their hearts to where it's revealed to them. And if you're hearing these things and you're like, yeah, that is true. I need to believe that. Then you know what? I would say that the strong arm of the Lord's been revealed to you. And you simply need to believe. And you simply need to turn from your sin and turn to the one who was born to save you. He loves you. He's accepted you. He's turned toward you. And he offers you life. Give him your garbage. (laughs) Amen? Amen. Let me pray. We'll take our offering. We'll sing together and call it a morning. Father, thanks for Jesus. Thank you that really becoming a Christian, the whole Christian life is a gift exchange. It's Christmas all the time. And it's curious because the gifts I give are so ultimately worthless. And the thing that I give is my sin and my sorrow and my shame and my guilt and fill in the blank. And yet, Jesus, you receive it. And as we see in the passage from Isaiah 53 this morning, you take it, you accept it, you embrace it, and you die on the cross with it for me. And then you rise again the third day and you give me life. I don't deserve it in return. Thanks for your grace and your mercy toward me, a sinner. Father, I pray for those this morning who would, who would hear this word, that if they've never trusted you, but they hear these things and your strong arm is being revealed to them and they know, they know, they know that it's true. Might they make a decision today to simply turn to you, Jesus, in saving faith. To give you the gifts of their sin, that you might give them the gift of your righteousness and your life. Pray that with all my heart, that Holy Spirit, you might do that today in the hearts of some who hear my voice. Thanks for Jesus. We pray all this through him. Amen.